So, how many of you in school, some of you may be still in school, your favorite class was civics or government? Oh, well, you're going to love this. <laughs> we have a little government lesson today. A little bit of civics. All of you that just loved government class, what, what form of government does the United States have? And it doesn't start with a D, just so nobody embarrasses themselves. Republic. What kind of republic? It, the governing... The government employed in our country is a constitutional republic with a democratic process as to how we go about it. But we don't have a democracy because a pure democracy says if there's 100 people and 51 say this and 49 say that, then whatever that 51 wants is the 51 gets. The, the, the people have to be limited in some sense by something that would keep them from saying... You know, like most would say, anybody that's taller than five foot eight probably should be a slave of the five foot eight people. Most of us short guys would vote for that, and all you tall guys would have to be our slave if we lived in a pure democracy. But we have a constitutional republic so that the majority rule is constrained by the Constitution. If you think of our government, you could think of it like a four legged stool, and, and I actually have some graphics that I prepared for you today. These didn't come from the internet. These are absolutely cooked for you personally for this Sunday. You could think of our, our governmental system as a four-legged stool, and the first representation would be upside down. So if you take, can you show the first picture? Um, the, the absolute foundation of, of our governmental system is our constitution. And then resting on the Constitution are the three branches of our government and, and us, the citizens. The three branches of the government are the legislature, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. So they would be, the executive branch would be the, headed by the president, the legislative would be the, the Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and the judicial, at the top of the judicial branch, the federal courts would be the Supreme Court. And then next to that, equally would be the citizenry, which would be us. Flip the thing over now. The next, the next slide. The way that the founders or the framers designed America was that the Constitution would be the foundation of, of our federal government, but the, the legs of the stool would also be the support for the Constitution. And you can see this in the way that they've written um, the oaths of office. Let me read to you the presidential oath of office. And, and the presidential oath of office is actually in the Constitution. I mean, it's literally required that he uses these particular words to assume his office. The others are not that way, but they are uh, oaths of office to, to enter. So here's the presidential oath of office. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. If you want to be a senator or a congressman, you would take this oath. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States 
against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. If you are like um, the Idoni boys or Tanya and Ashley, and you become a citizen of the United States, you take an oath of citizenship. And that, that, this, I won't read the whole thing, it's fairly long, but let me read the, the part that's relevant to today's conversation. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. If you think about it, as a Christian, we talk about leading somebody to the Lord. That oath of allegiance is really what we're doing, right? We're, we're saying that by faith, I profess myself. I, I give oath unto this new king, right? We sang it. It blows me away, Margie, the songs that you pick or Holy Spirit picks for you. When I'm going to talk about the king today, and we're declaring he's king and declaring his lordship over our lives in the songs. And that's kind of what this is doing, that if you want to become a citizen of the United States, you must pledge your allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, that you will protect and defend the Constitution. So if you give me my next picture, please. Ultimately, in proper function, that's what our government looks like, where the legislature, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the citizenry are all standing on the Constitution and supporting the Constitution. Our government has really cool checks and balances built into it. So if, for example, the executive branch, the president, should get out of line with the Constitution, there are powers that are afforded to the legislative and to the judicial branch to bring the executive branch back into a line with its constitutional responsibilities, not allowing it to go outside. The same is true if the legislative branch, if they start to enact laws that are uh, inconsistent with the Constitution, then the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, can cast down those laws. The citizenry participates as well with the vote. If we have a president or a representative who acts outside of their oath to the Constitution, we can exercise our check and balance and vote them out. That's the difference between, and I'll talk about this some more in a minute, but the difference between a monarchy and a constitutional republic built on a democratic foundation is that in a monarchy, the king is absolute and sovereign. In our world, we would kind of think of the president as, as absolute authority, but he's not. Because he's there because we put him there. And if we don't like him, we take him out and put somebody else there. That's not the case with the king. The king is there, and the king stays there. The Constitution provides for the authority that the three branches and the citizens have. It provides the foundation for the laws that govern how our society interacts with itself. And any laws that come that are outside of that, or any behavior that comes that's outside of that, then some part of the whole is empowered to bring the other one into line. So, for example, um, 
you have the right to, oh, I just lost it in my head, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? If I infringe on that, then the executive branch has authority to then imprison me, take me before the judicial, the judicial checks that, yep, that's true, that's a good law, and then imprison me because I'm infringing on your rights. It's a really awesome system. The problem with the system is this. If any two pieces choose to be disobedient to their oath to the Constitution, the whole thing can come undone, right? So if the, if the executive branch is acting outside of its authority and the legislative branch doesn't use its authority to bring them back into a line with what the Constitution allows them to do and stops them from doing the things that it doesn't allow them to do, then we have something different than a constitutional republic because the foundation of our society is no longer, there is no authority in the Constitution if those that are empowered by it don't act in the way that it empowers them. You have then anarchy. You have every man for himself. You have, I'm a, I'm a law unto myself, and then society comes unglued because the oath that they've sworn to protect and uphold and defend the Constitution, they haven't done what they said they would do, and then the thing comes undone. That's how you end up with revolution, where one part has to decide that the other parts aren't doing their thing, and you get military coups, you get the citizenry that rises up, arms themselves and you know, throw, overthrows the government because people don't adhere to their proper place and authority that the Constitution has given them. So the bottom line to this whole thing is that the Constitution is our foundation. America is what America is, not because of our president, not because of our Congress, not because of our courts, not because of our people, but because it is established in the Constitution. Trying to think, there was a thought I wanted to share with you. Maybe it'll come back. Lord, if it's good, important, let me know. So, as God's people, we have a different form of government. We don't have a constitutional republic, we have a monarchy. Our head of our government is not a president, he's not checked by a Congress, he's not a. Oh, I know what it was, the judiciary. This is what you need to be careful. As we're heading into the season of electing a president, the, the biggest cherry for a president is to be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice. That's what they die for. If, if it looks like, if the Democrats are in power and it looks like the Republicans are going to be in power and there's a 110-year-old Supreme Court justice about to fall off his chair and die, they're praying that he doesn't die until the election changes. And the criteria that they use to select a Supreme Court justice is typically based upon their political doctrine. Is he for abortion or is he against abortion? Is she for this or is she against that? Because we don't want to get somebody that's in there that doesn't agree with our doctrine of how things are supposed to be. There's only one criteria that should be used to select a Supreme Court justice. Are they capable and willing to hold everything up against the Constitution, to rightly interpret the Constitution in every single matter, not let the Constitution be twisted and turned to uh, serve their particular political doctrine. And that's the thing that if if I hear a presidential candidate, and and one of the things that makes a difference is they're going to, what are you going to do if you get a Supreme Court justice? Well, I'm looking for somebody who's against abortion. I'm against abortion all day long, but I ain't voting for that guy. 
at least for that reason, because his job is to support and uphold the Constitution, not to build a government that's built around his doctrine. That's how we end up in this place of of the people, by the people, and for the people, to of the government, by the government, and for the government. They end up in elite class with tremendous powers. If they won't check and balance one another, it stops being about the citizenry, and it starts being about the politicians. And then they get strongholds, biblical term. They start to get these thoughts in their minds that rationalize all this crazy stuff that they're doing that's contrary to the actual oath that they spoke when they took their office. Okay. A little more of that than I thought I was going to say. Our form of government in God's world is a monarchy. In a monarchy, the king is sovereign and his rule is absolute. He's, he just is because he is because he is. Now, people think about king... And it doesn't always put a good taste in your mouth. A monarchy is the absolute best potential form of government that can exist. Constitutional republic's okay. Works pretty good if people do what they're supposed to do. People get a bad taste about a monarchy because there's a lot of history where a human being becomes a king and then his flesh rises up. He starts to see himself as a god. And a bad king is a terrible monarchy. The reason it can be the best is if you have a good king, there's no better way to be governed. That's why monarchy in our context as the church is awesome because we have a perfect king with a perfect character who's demonstrated his perfect character by living a perfect and sinless life and in no way stumbling. <laughs> so in our form of government, I have other graphics for you. They're even better than these, if you could imagine. Give me half the next one, please. Awesome. <laughs> so, so in the church, see that that's that's your little church T-shirt right there. That's all. That's all of us right there. That the happy blue guy. Now he's he's not like like this. He's happy because he's got a good firm foundation. Our foundation, our constitution are the scriptures, the Bible, God's word, truth. That's our foundation. If you look at um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, woman, people of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Scripture is inspired by God. Remember what Phyllis said? I mean, I don't think you saw me just like I got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. It was the, if you weren't here, it was the illustration I was using last week. You've got to make a decision. If you're, if you're one foot in and one foot out, you're really both feet out. Jesus demands both feet over here. Now, you can wonder about something and, and think, well, I don't know, maybe this is okay. And, and your foot will come back because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And we have the Bible. We have our constitution. And if we're true to it, that little foot that wants to wander over the other side will come back where it belongs on this side because the Lord knows how to keep us in his person, in Jesus, right? Okay, all scripture is inspired by God. We need to decide that we believe that. It is. It's inspired by God. If you've read some and it, and it wigs you out, trust me, there are some parts in there that will wig you out. There are parts that have wigged me out. When Teresa got me a Bible when I first got saved, I started at the front. You don't got to go very far into Genesis to hit some really weird stuff that doesn't seem like your paradigm about God. I told her, Teresa, I don't think this is very good. What are you reading? This guy got, these girls got their dad drunk. I'll stop right there. 
She says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't read this part yet. You flip, 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 flip. You start over here and read this part. Once you get a good handle on this part, then we'll start to look at this part over here. I'm like, okay, good, because that part there is very weird. <laughs> I was a baby. But what we have to do is we have to decide that it is. It is inspired by God. And once you start to invest yourself in the scriptures, you will not have to wonder if it's divinely inspired. Amen. You will not have to wonder if it's worth doing. So excellent. So it's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. If you ever wonder, how can I live in righteousness? The Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does righteousness look like? It's in the book. I should have. Oh, I have it. Good. Oh, it's so much more effective than an iPad. Would you shake the Bible like this? Probably do that again. So that God's people may be adequate. You have what you need if you learn those scriptures and follow them and are equipped for every good work. God has called us to good works. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Somebody said the other day, we all know it's not about works. Well, it kind of is about works. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. How do I do them? In righteousness. What does it look like? He wrote it down for us. It's God-inspired. It's excellent for everything that we need. And it will guide us to the place of getting done everything that God needs us to do. The Word of God is our foundation. We rest our lives by faith on its truth, its excellence. I guess excellence and perfection are about the same thing. And that its source is the Lord. Now, just as... Can I have the first guy picture, the last one that was up there? Just like... The Word of God is the foundation that we stand on. Now give me the next one, please. We're also responsible to hold... You notice the guy's hairstyle? That's what you love about him. Because he wears his hair in such a cool way. Listen to this scripture. This, is, this, this one humbles me to no end. This is the Apostle Paul talking to his son in the faith, Timothy. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Put the, the handsome bald guy back up for just a second, the last one. That's our responsibility in this world. See, there's, there's earthly wisdom. The Bible says its source is demonic. It makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, except it's contrary to kingdom wisdom. The wisdom from above that's, that's heavenly and peaceable and fruitful and all those kinds of things. And we're challenged by these other ways of thinking. But our responsibility as the pillar and support of the truth is that we always hold up the word of God. So just like our constitution as American citizens, the branches of government and the citizenship works, so does, give me the next one please, so does our relationship in the kingdom, that we stand on a foundation that's scripture. And, and as the winds and the waves and all those things come and we're challenged and different things happen, we hold up the scripture. And it's a constant feeding. We, supported by the scripture, we support the scripture. Supported by the scripture, support the scripture. It's the only way to live a kingdom lifestyle. It is the only way to live a kingdom lifestyle. Let me read you some kind of um, word-related words, some scriptures. Uh, again, Paul to Timothy, 
uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, Paul is saying, I'm going to try to come and see you, Timothy, until I get there, here's what you do. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Now, this is Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall, excuse me, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What the Lord is trying to tell Israel, and what he's trying to tell us is, the word needs to always be in your mouth. It needs to always be in your mind. It's, it's interesting. This scripture didn't do it, but Teresa and I, we read the Bible every day. Every night when we go to bed, we have... Um, mp3 of the bible in a little ipod um radio deal that the clock radio thing and we put it in there and we go to sleep for an hour it just plays scripture in our ears to go to sleep if we wake up at night and we can't go to sleep we push the button again and we listen for another hour so we go back to sleep and we and we wake up in the morning the alarm is wherever the scripture stopped when we went to sleep it starts in the morning it's just constantly filling us constantly filling us constantly filling us it's like the scripture says it has to be constantly in front of you because the world is always in your face if you got a television the world is always in your face if you drive a car billboards the world is always in your face it's always trying to influence you always trying to change the way you think the scripture needs to be always in your face temptation is always in your face the scripture needs to be always in your face always in your heart always in your ears always on your eyes so that when the things come we know how to respond in the lord John 15:7 Jesus speaking, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The abiding guides the asking. Somewhere else Jesus says, whatsoever you should ask when you pray and believe, know that you have it. What's the key there? Whatsoever you should ask when you pray. Where, where are you in prayer? You're in abiding with Jesus. You're, you're in communion with the Lord when you pray and then in your hearing and he's influencing your thoughts and you ask out of abiding so that you know that what you're asking is from him that he's prompting you so that then he will respond because you found his will in abiding Psalm 119 if you ever wonder if a sermon is from heaven if I preach out of the Psalms, you know that God had to be there someplace. Because the Psalms confuse me more than they help me a lot. But this one doesn't. Psalm 119, 105 and 106. Your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. The word of God is the light of our righteous path. If we think that there's some way that we can walk a righteous path, outside of any understanding of the word of God, we deceive ourselves. It's a lamp. It's a light. Lord, where do I go? It tells me here. It's decisions. Every day, every step is a fork in the road. Every thought is something that has to be considered. Does it stand true to Jesus? Doesn't? Put it down. Does it stand true to a true knowledge of God? It doesn't. Put it down. Always and constantly bathing our thoughts against the word of God that's true because it guides us as a lamp to our feet. 
Matthew 7. Sorry, this won't look so good, but it keeps scratching. There you go. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. How do you find the boundary of the narrow way? What's it look like? It looks like don't return evil for evil. It looks like consider others more highly than you consider yourself. It looks like treat others the way you want them to treat you. How do you know that? Because it's in the book. How do we find the narrow path? How do we know when we're getting close? Because we go to sleep with the scriptures. We wear them as a frontal on our forehead. We write them on the, on the uh, template of our heart, whatever that word is. And then as we're walking and we get near the edge, the Holy Spirit can prompt us because we know the truth. The spirit that, that masquerades as an angel of light can't prompt us outside the narrow path because no matter how good his deception is, we have the word of God that we test every thought against. And we know if there's a fork in the road, which way do we go? Because Holy Spirit is leading us and the word is confirming. We have to know God's word. It has to be our constitution. Now, a few weeks ago, and that's what, that's what, this is what prompted this whole message, is... Somebody was sharing with me, us, in a Bible study about that their daughter, Christian lady, loves the Lord, but believes that homosexuals should get married and that it's wrong that the church should not ordain homosexual marriage. And as you know, many churches are are ordaining homosexual marriages. And there's a wisdom in the world that says, look it, you know, These two guys, they love each other. They're committed to one another. They're exclusive with one another. They have all of the trappings of what a married couple would look like, except they're both guys. I don't understand how that can be right. I think the church should do this. When you boil it down to its very essence, what you're doing then is you're judging God. Now, I don't necessarily understand all or much of some of the things that are in the Bible. I, I don't understand them myself. I, I don't have the, the reasoning power to be able to understand exactly what God says. But what I do have is by faith a commitment that he's God and that I'm not. So it looks like, man, it should be nice, it's fair, they should be able to... In the church, it can't be. Because we don't judge God. We trust that his, he's right. We don't judge his word. If we don't understand his word, we ask for understanding. If we still don't get understanding, then we go by faith and we trust his word because it's him. Because he's king, he's not president, he's not senator, he's not Supreme Court justice. He's king and he's sovereign. I'll just read this to you. It's more than I can remember to say. The key to America as we know it is our adherence to the Constitution. When the checks and balances fail, the Constitution loses its force, hence the wording of the oaths of office and citizenship, right? So when we depart from any kind of a commitment to the Constitution, the Constitution itself loses its force. If the people aren't taught the importance of our constitutional foundation, the principle of of the people, by the people, for the people, it looks like I already got you here, becomes of the government, by the government, and for the government. The same is true for the church. Scripture gets attacked in all kinds of ways, right? Uh, It's not relevant to this age. It's an archaic old book that was written thousands of years ago. It has no application to how the world has evolved in those thousands of years. Update your book so that it better applies to the world as it is today. Uh, It's not flexible with the ebb and the flow of culture. 
all of these arguments and all of these thoughts, if we're not careful, will change the pointing and the recognition of king to king. God, seriously, you know, you created an awesome earth for us. It's beautiful. The mounds, the trees, the birds, butterflies are awesome. You know, it's great. But you don't understand how we've evolved, and you have not evolved with us. And you need to evolve with us, God, because we're different than we were. That makes truth relative. It's not relative. Truth is absolute, and it's eternal. And God's word is true. But it's hard, and people get mad, and they call us names... He knew that 2,000 years ago. He knew it. And he wrote it down for us so we could be ready for it. Our life, I got ahead of myself. Our life is of the king, by the king, and for the king. It's not of me, by me, and for me. In the context of America, it is the people. And it's a good system. But in the kingdom, it's about the king. First Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1.16, much the same. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and are for him. Then, why is it that the church has a tendency to wander away from our constitution? There's probably a lot of reasons, but a couple that I'm going to talk about today. And, and the first one is kind of a lumping. Persecution, pain, and pleasure. The second one is understanding. First, let's deal with persecution, pain, pain and pleasure. Uh, you're probably familiar with the parable of the seed and the soil. The, the soil is our hearts. The seed is the word of God. And Jesus gives this parable where he explains about the sower, which is him, the person, you know, the farmer that's planting the seed, and then the different types of soil that, that the seed finds, and then the results of the seed's ability to produce based upon the type of soil that it lands on. So they're like, explain us the parable. This is the explanation. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. He said that that seed is going to fall on soil. And then persecution and affliction are going to come. You don't have, you don't love, you're judgmental, you're exclusive, you're a hater. It's not about 
what you say. It's about a woman's right to choose over her own body. If a pregnant woman walks down the street and I shoot her and she dies and the fetus inside of her dies, I'm guilty of two murders. But if she chooses to take that thing and have it popped out at whatever time during the pregnancy, that's a piece of her... It's like she wanted to chop off her finger. It's inconsistent. The persecution comes. He says the persecution is going to come. What do we do when the persecution comes? We hold up the word of God. We stand on our foundation and we hold up the word of God. But what about? But what? But what about? Heaven is full of martyrs that stood for Jesus. It is full of martyrs and there are more on the way. What about the people in the Middle East? What about people in China? The strongest church in the world, Christian church, is probably in China where they're persecuted for their faith. What are they doing? They're standing on the word of God and they're holding it up. And what happens? They get persecuted. And what do they do? They stand on it and they hold it up. He says, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choke the word. Imagine a guy. Keith, stand up here for just a minute. The Bible says, I'm right up on this big old stage thing. Face this way. The Bible says, representative, this is the body of Christ. That's all of us. This is the head. That's Jesus. The head commands, tell your arm to go like that. See how good it works? Jesus says, body, raise up your arm. Simon says, Jesus says, right? But if you choke because, ooh, I want riches. Oh, I want comfort. I want this. I want that. And you allow it to choke, then when the, body, when the head says move and the arm doesn't move, because now the body has concerned. Thank you. You did an awesome job. I preach a whole sermon. Nobody claps. You stand up here for one minute. Don't say a word. Everybody claps. I see where your hearts are at. The point is, if we allow our minds, right, the world is always after you. Look at the billboard, look at the television, look at your neighbor's car, look at your car. Pick however you want to be tempted. And you allow those things to gain a place in your mind and in your heart, pretty soon the word of God becomes silent to you because you've allowed the desires and the cares of the world to choke the word. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Me, in this case, is Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reward is great in persecution, but not in capitulation. I knew you'd ask, so I looked it up. I'll give you a dictionary, dictionary definition of capitulation. The action of surrendering or ceasing to resist an opponent or demand. The world says, I demand that you desire this brand new car or this great big house. Well, I can't tithe anymore because I, I need this car because my identity is all lost and I've got to have stuff or who knows what the reason might be. And you capitulate to the word of God. You capitulate, you, not you, people, other people, but not you, but generally, you know, all of us, we're tempted to capitulate, to give in to these desires that are contrary to the call in our lives in Christ Jesus. Understanding that the, the persecution and the affliction and the temptation are going to come, Here's one that you can be comforted in. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just, it is, just as it is written, 
For your sake, for his sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, he knew they were coming. He warned us that they were coming. He told us, be good soil, stand in the thing, and none of that stuff can separate us from his love. His love is how we conquer. We conquer through him. Jesus is the word become flesh. If we wonder about the word, we look at Jesus. And we know the word because he is the word incarnate. The word become flesh. And then finally, he's the bread of life and he is living water. When we consume the word of God, it is the bread of life. It is the living water that keeps us able to stand and to support his word and the life that he's called us to. Now, the second reason I wanted to touch on is we don't understand. And I'll do this one more quickly. Scripture teaches us that we should seek to know and we should seek to understand. So when you're reading the Bible and, and it doesn't illuminate for you, keep reading it. Ask the Lord, illuminate this for me, Lord. Help me to understand. Help me to know the word and help me to understand the word. Help me to rightly apply the word to my life in every way, in every relationship. And he will. Because he's given us the spirit of truth. And the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. So at the appropriate time, Holy Spirit will open up the word of God to us. And he does it continually. That's why it's so, one of the the whys it's so awesome to read the Bible is you can read a a portion of scripture that you've read a hundred times. And it's good and it can guide your life. And then the hundred and first time, it'll explode And they're like, wow, all that was in there. And it'll connect to other things in the Bible. And then your life will be so enriched because he's opened it up to you. Jesus, after his resurrection and before his ascension, was walking to this place called Emmaus. He's on the road to Emmaus. And and there are three of his disciples. I think there's three of them. And they're walking down the road. And Jesus, he comes and he's walking next to these guys. And they're like, hey. He's like, Jesus says, hey, what's going on? And they're like, have you been in a coma? You don't know what's been going on in Jerusalem and, you know, they crucified the Christ and all this kind of stuff. He's like, wow, that's pretty cool, you know. And all of a sudden it says, and then they opened, God opened their minds to the scriptures and they recognized Jesus. The Jesus, is we've got blood made holes in his wrists and everything. They recognized him because until then they weren't given to see. That's the scriptures for us. If you seek me, you'll find me. You have to believe that God is real and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently pursue him. He's not cheap. We have to come after him. But if we come after him, he will open up the scriptures to us in a way that will enhance our lives beyond our ability to imagine it. Okay, I'm getting there. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, this is God speaking through the prophet, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because we have an understanding that we can't understand everything, because he hasn't given us to be God, he's given us a certain amount of understanding, he has his purposes and his reasons for how and why he does things, because we understand that his ways and his thoughts are bigger than our thoughts, he's given us this scripture. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. We have to remember, and this is truth, and it's also truth by experience for me, that this life in this kingdom is a walk of faith. And it requires faith. Because you can measure things in the world that you can't measure in the kingdom. You can't put a a yardstick to certain aspects of the kingdom and prove them the way the world would want you to prove things to be true. But if you'll walk with the Lord and you'll be obedient to his truth, you will come to know in ways that you would never be able to deny in your own heart the truth of what he says. It's a walk of faith that's confirmed over time if you're diligent to walk with the Lord. I take just a minute. My personal testimony with regard to Scripture, I, I don't know what it would mean to you, but to me, I'm awed by it. Just this morning, I have to look closely. Girls get mad when I talk about it, but there's so many good stories. Talking about Ashley. Thank you. It really was Ashley today. Ashley comes down and we're talking, and she, I, I tell her something about herself, something complimentary, and, and she has trouble receiving it. You know, And I explained to her that, honey, you have changed so much just in the six months that you've been here. And I won't go into all the details, but I mean, she has dramatically changed. It's the Word of God. It's because it reflects off of us. It's because it's the way we interact with her. She has dramatically changed. And I said, honey, she said, I don't, I don't think or I don't remember what she said. But I said, honey, you didn't know Daddy before I knew Jesus. And I'm a 40-year-old man before, if Jesus would have fallen out of the sky with a cross in his hand and landed on my head, I wouldn't have had any clue who just hit me. Seriously, I was that white a sheet of paper. And my life is so different. I don't think the same. I don't respond the same. It's the Word of God. It's, it's sowing into his Word and then trying it out and testing it and finding out there's fruit in actually doing it. It's just off the charts. It's like... I don't want to ever counsel anybody outside of just, I'm going to read scripture to you. I don't want to have an opinion. I don't want any of that because the word doesn't need my opinion. It might need some exposition because some of us are in different places in our understanding. But the word of God stands true and perfect. And if we'll do it, it will bring about excellence. And I watch it in my life and it has so dramatically changed me that that's the way I want to think in every situation, every fork of the road. What does the scripture teach me? How am I supposed to react? I want the big piece of chicken? Uh, Bible says that I should consider I take the small piece of chicken, most of the time the small piece of chicken. I'll leave you with these couple of things. Instruction. Read the word. If you don't read your Bible daily, I mean, you know, you don't go to prison because you missed a day kind of thing, but you have to decide that it's important. It's really important. If you want your life to be better, I prom- and you know, if you don't read it much, don't start at the beginning. Start in John, start in Matthew, somewhere on that side of the divide. Read the word. Discuss the word. Find people and talk about the word of God. You will find, we do Bible study. I, I learn talking about the word. It's like I never understood it. It just comes right out of you as you're talking. Read the word. Discuss the word. Meditate on the word. Trust the word. When it says A, do A. And trust that God will be true to his word. Apply the word and then uphold the word. Now, 
the Bible is not an idol. But I can't personally separate the Bible from God. I think the Bible is a reflection of God. The Bible is God's word. Jesus is the word incarnate. The red letters are the words that he actually spoke. But the Bible is not an idol. It points to the king and it defines relationship with the king and it binds the path of his subjects to eternal life. And really to temporal life that's any good worth having. The last thing I'll share with you today, it's so interesting... I went. I finished all this this morning. It, a bunch of it changed. I went on Facebook because I wanted to see how Katie's dad was doing, and I didn't see any new updates from Katie. But I stumbled across a pastor posted a sermon, and it's like, wow, this pastor is preaching my very same message. It's not too long. I want to read it to you. There is freedom from this doomsday thinking. I know because I've walked it out. Evil tries to trip me up still, but it's a temporary slip and I get right back up on the horse of this always fresh freedom thinking. Negativity is rooted in fear. I've learned to change my mind, my thinking, my directions. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Think about these things and receive the gift of peace. Bonus, receive a double portion of peace by starting at verse 4. Philippians 4, 4, I'm sure. Here's the real kicker, friends. Are you listening? Because this is the kicker. Here's the real kicker, friends. Just reading it might bring a temporary fix. However, you must do what it says to receive the double reward, blessing, gift of peace. It takes practice. I promise that his promise of his peace will come to you if you begin to change your negativity habit by reading, memorizing, and doing what God says to do in Philippians 4. Four through nine. So practice peace until it is your new habit and the pessimism pessimism fades into the dust and is swept away for good. Fear, doomsday thinking, is an old friend and an, an old sin habit that is comfortably stealing hours, days, weeks, even years from your life, robbing you of love or peace, love, and joy. Perfect love drives out all fear. It really does. Look it up, <laughs> look it up, and find freedom in whose you are, whose you are. Do not be afraid, be strong and courageous. He is with you always, even to the end. Scripture is alive. You can read it like any other book, or you can breathe it in and find freedom from, that's just the way I am. Find freedom from, getting away from this thing that that's just the way I am. I've always been a warrior, always will be. These words are a lie from the evil one who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. They do not bring life. And we know that in all things he works for good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. 28. Did you catch that? All things for your good. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm going to add that to my preaching. He is good all the time, and you'll see. He is working, even if it doesn't seem like it today. He said it, so it has to be true. That's faith. He said it, so it has to be true. It takes practice, changing old lifelong patterns. Keep pressing into the truth. Read Psalm 139 in Ephesians. Know who you are. Know whose you are. Start encouraging others. It really changes you. Start finding freedom today. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind from a fear-driven pessimist. Grace and peace, signed Pastor Margie D. Good job, Margie. You didn't think I was going to say your name. I signed my sermons. I'm glad you signed yours.
That is absolutely beautiful. And I could not tell you better than Margie did. Now, she was dealing with a specific area of life, but she's telling you that if you take the scriptures... It's a testimony to the truth. You might practice Philippians 4 once and, and the whatever you're dealing with doesn't go away, then practice it twice. Practice it three times. Go back and read it again. Sow it into your heart, and I promise you, the peace of God, this is this course of Scripture, the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, therefore, dwell on these things, which I never can remember the list, but they're all good stuff you should dwell on. I personally use Scripture. When I'm being attacked in my mind, be it a lustful thought, a prideful thought, any kind of thought that wouldn't stand true to God, that wouldn't please Jesus, I put it down. And if it won't go, I recite uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Scripture, did I say my cup overflows? My cup overflows. I missed one. The point is, Scripture says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's trying to bring that garbage into your mind and into your heart and then ultimately into your life, and you say, no, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to... Why did I start this? Because I was under attack. What was the attack? I don't remember. Why don't I remember? Because the scripture says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you don't remember because he's gone. Amen. Amen. All right. I think I've kicked that horse until there's air no more in his lungs. I just implore you. I implore you. Please, please, please read the Bible. If you don't understand it, it's okay. Holy Spirit will lead you to all truth. He will give you somebody if you'll talk about scripture. You will find yourself... Understanding the scriptures just by the process of asking a question, all of a sudden enlightenment will come. It's so amazing. The word of God is so excellent. Our marriage is great because we support our marriage by doing what the Bible tells us. When my flesh wants to be stinky, if I will shut my flesh down and do what God says and honor my wife, our relationship is awesome. Read it, acknowledge it, and do it. You will be truly, we will be the light of the world, a city on a hill, when we acknowledge the word of God and we make it the light inside of us. Understand it's Holy Spirit that that illuminates everything, but the word of God is how we know everything is true. Amen? Amen. Okay, Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, your son, your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be passionate for everything that's you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome day.